Hello, everybody. Welcome in once again to the Please Stay Inside podcast. I am Rob. This is episode number five. We are joined here today by Mary Byler. Uh, she is the author of Reflections and Memories of an Amish Misfit. She was born and raised in an Amish community uh, within five different sects. Uh, and within her book, she talks about the experience within these communities, um, especially a lot of the trauma that occurred within the community, escaping from that community, uh, etc. So, Mary, welcome in. Hi, Rob. Thank you for inviting me to come talk about this. Absolutely. And thank you for um, reading my book. Yes, it was, it was. It was a very amazing book. It was difficult for sure. Um, there is a lot, um, a, a lot of pain in the book for sure. Um, and should let everyone know that you know. Trigger warning. There will. Um, well, we'll be talking a bit about trauma, specifically CSA. Um, we won't go into too much detail, I believe, but just to put that out there. Um, so tell us a little bit about your book. So my book is actually written because one of the big things that I have found out about people is that many people, they want what I call trauma porn. And what I mean by that is they want like specific details of trauma and they, they love hearing about trauma, but they don't want to hear about the rest of it. And they don't quite understand how trauma intertwines with your daily life. And so when they write about me or people like me or my, um, even like things like they do research on or they they make movies or they share stories they only share things very in a very myopic way because they don't include adequate information and i feel like they have used my story to achieve their goals in what they're hoping to accomplish rather than talking about my story and my life experiences as they were. So I wrote a book that talks about what I experienced as an Amish child in a way that I am okay with it being out there because it doesn't just tell the story from one side. So we, within the book, I guess, what, what all went into to writing this in the way that you wanted things to be portrayed in the way that, you know, in the way that you wanted to present them rather? Ooh, that's a, a really big question. Mm-hmm. What all went into it? I guess to, to break it down a little bit. How did you get to the point of wanting to tell the story? Because I understand it's it, it's a lot. It, it's a difficult thing to talk about, I'd have to imagine. Well, um, why did I want to tell the story? For those of, for the people who have watched like Sins of the Amish, for example, which is a docu-series that um, part of my story is also featured in, uh, I will say this, and I've often said this, when you sit in a courtroom with four busloads of people around you who get up and weep for the people who violently abused you for over a decade, they testify for this person, they cry on command while they cast you out. It does something to you. Mm. It does something to you when they harass you for years, it does something to you when they claim that you are doing things that you've never done, when they does something to you. Mm. But even back then, like that was very much, there were newspaper articles written at that point in time that literally they would like it was it was considered unfathomable to have a conversation with 
multiple Amish survivors of CSA uh, without bringing in so-called experts. And these so-called experts came into the media and what they did is really despicable because, for example, they had three survivors who were willing to speak for one article, and they all were interviewed by the reporter, and they bring in this so-called expert who literally says, oh, that was an isolated incident. Amish mm -hmm. people aren't really like that. That's just, you know, Amish people love their children. And so for the next, like, you know, from, from then until... Um, I wrote a research study on, on CSA and Amish, Mennonite, Hutterite, Anabaptist, and other religious communities. There hasn't been like research, actual research that is available about um, CSA in these communities, mm. even though we know it, it exists. Right, right. And the research, so, uh, oh, sorry. So, Part, part one is like we we in order for us to address the issue of CSA and Amish communities, we have to first identify the problem. We can't address a problem that doesn't exist. Mm. Right. We, we have to agree with the objective reality that it's there, that it's happening and that it's not an isolated incident. Yep. Yeah. And within the research that you had done, I had. Um, uh, seen a, a brief bit of it through um, through one of your TikToks uh, around the time when you had done the research, uh, if I'm referencing the, the correct research, but it seemed like the, the rate was pretty high. It's about one in two. Right. Which 47%. is... 47%. If you take out the people that responded unsure or mm -hmm. even just understand this, is that 47% of the raised Anabaptist people reported experiencing CSA and then understand that 43% of the raised Anabaptist people did not report experiencing CSA and the rest of the people were unsure. Mm. Mm. And you know, those numbers, like as far as like that goes, that's about one in two, right? Right. But it also doesn't mean that it's the end-all, be-all. In order for us to have an accurate percentage, we would have to survey every single Amish person mm -hmm. or every single Anabaptist or every single religious person. Mm. Right, which would be, I, I suppose, pretty unfeasible. Okay. And then, I mean, with the, with the statistic of the individuals who are unsure, I know one of the things that you've that you've talked about um, as being part of an issue as well is that people have to have the language to describe what is happening and to be able to identify that this is a, that this is not, you know, um, anything that is in any way acceptable. You know, this is a real criminal act and they have to be able to have that language to describe it. And so when you're talking about that unsure part of the statistic, I have to imagine that that maybe something that comes into play there as well. When you don't have language to define or to even be able to know that what's happening to you or what's being done to you is considered SA or CSA or any of your abuse in general, mm -hmm. how can you begin to say that it's happening? Exactly. Exactly. So, so, go ahead. So, g given what your experience has been and the the experience of so many others, where do you imagine the the so called experts that were coming out around this time? Where are they getting this information? You 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 believe? Well, you're asking me a loaded question. In order for you to understand where this information is coming from, you have to understand that to be Amish is not just to be a part of a religion. Mm -hmm. It is also a cultural thing. Um, and so far as like, this is how we are raised. This is what we experience in our culture. It is it is very encompassing. We are separate of the, not of the world. And you have to understand too, that to be Amish carries a genetic component with it because of the fact that for over 
for almost 400 years, our communities have been very insular and isolated. We actually have our own genetic disorders. Mm. The likelihood of me having a child that has um, genetic disorders or defects, as they call them, um, is much increased simply because of the fact that I was born Amish. You have to understand that being Amish is also a business. It's not just a religion. It's not just a culture. It's not just genetics. It's also a business. And people do what they need to do to protect their branding. Mm. Their branding is almost impeccable, mm. except now when we speak up against the atrocities and we address those and we start performing and providing meaningful interventions, we are actually in some people's minds, we are speaking against God, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. You have to understand that the culture itself is a caste system. And what I mean by that is that, like, for example, the bishop, the ministers, the deacon, which is in each church district, you'll have like a bishop, ministers, and a deacon. Those people hold the most power within the church district. And then you'll have people who are wealthy businessmen. You'll have people who are who are from a good family. And when you understand that the good family, like you can, good families are going to experience life vastly different than people who come from the poor families or people who need resources. Like let's mm -hmm. say, you know, you're somebody who, who became a widow, for example, and the church has to provide resources for you and your children because you're not necessarily allowed to work outside the home. Or if you are able to even generate some money, you may not be able to generate enough money or sufficient money to actually provide for your children because of limitations on your employment. You're going to be at a vastly different place than the people who are at the top of the ladder. You're going to experience life vastly different from the people who are at the top of the ladder. Mm -hmm. If you're somebody who doesn't get married at the right time when you're supposed to get married, typically in the communities I lived in, it was 1920, that was considered acceptable. Some people would get married at 18 or 16 if they you know, happened to be impregnated while they were those ages. Mm -hmm. um, but to be pregnant out of wedlock can also cause you to lose some social status. To be the victim of a crime can cause you to lose, lose social status. To um, be, get married and not be able to have children can cause you to lose social status. If you adopt children, you can gain social status. If you marry somebody from a good family, you can gain social status. So to begin addressing that, you have to also understand that there's a lot of stereotyping about Amish people. Typically, people have this idea of like peaceful, gentle people, the non-resistant, conscientious objectors who are pacifists. And, you know, also Wisconsin versus Yoder, which is inherently a law that literally denies Amish children the right to an appropriate education. Our education is severely limited. It is moderated by the ministry at the top of it all. And below them is the school board and our teachers, like sometimes to qualify to be a teacher, all you have to do is have a good dress. Wow. You don't even have to be an adult. You just have to have a good dress or, you know, be from a good family or various other nuanced things that can basically qualify you to be a teacher to teach you English because first off like PA Dutch is my primary language so I had to go to school and learn English mm -hmm. that's where I learned English is an Amish school and then you learn English you learn reading you learn writing you learn arithmetic and phonics and maybe at the end of our schooling you might learn some civics and not civics to where I would know how to vote from that necessarily, but some civics, like some idea of like the general history of, of 
our government in some ways. And then geography. We didn't have any help. We didn't have any science. We didn't have, we just, there's so much that we were completely lacking. Mm. And I guess technically I shouldn't even say it was civics because it wasn't civics. It was history. We just learned some history of our country. Mm. So when we go back to Wisconsin versus Yoder, which allows this, in the footnotes of that very ruling, there is literally a note that states that Amish people do not commit crimes. And I'm here to tell you, they do commit crimes. That whole law is based in stereotyping Amish people. Hmm. With a stereotype that, you know, they, I guess everyone's best interest is represented in that these crimes aren't being committed, that everybody is, you know, it, it is this peaceful, cohesive community where everybody's getting along. Everybody is on the same page. Everybody is supported to the same to the same extent. Yep. Wow. So, I mean, with such a fundamental misunderstanding, it, it I, I wonder how the like like the the English community or just the community outside of the Amish community, how people view these kinds of accusations and they they hear these kinds of stories would you would you like me to share with you what a common response is sure this is ironically like i'm going to laugh inappropriately about this and i know that um but ironically these people outside of the community who may not know or or understand what they're seeing and they don't understand that what they see is exactly what the community wants them to see they don't Mm. understand that we literally sit there and we we actually laugh about english people in behind their backs in front of them we we there's such a separatist attitude but to the people who think that they have to like protect the amish communities and they have to make sure that these peaceful gentle people uh, don't we don't speak badly or speak ill of them right or the people who label me as like hateful because i speak up and because i speak with passion and because i'm very passionate about the fact that this is not okay we have done this as a society and we need to stop mm-hmm. Typically, when I disclose, they will, uh, when they figure out that I come from an Amish community, they'll often ask me, well, why did you leave? First off, that's none of your business. Second off, that is a deeply personal question. Third off, if I choose to answer that question and I go, well, you know, I chose to escape because of the over a decade of CSA that I experienced, the response is often this, but my Amish neighbors made me really good furniture mm-hmm. or, but surely you learned some good things there, but didn't you learn how to cook and clean and bake and sew and garden? You know what? I did learn to cook and clean and bake and sew and garden. I could have done all those things without experiencing the over a decade of CSA. That's the fact. Let's be realistic. Right. You can learn those things outside of that community or outside of an abusive environment. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's ridiculously invalidating to prioritize your own comfort in what you view a community as versus the very uncomfortable truth of what somebody is handing you. That's the truth. Mm. You're absolutely right. I couldn't imagine how difficult it is to have to face all of that to have to want to come out with your truth and to share what happened and to be faced with uh, of course uh, what I, I i could imagine some of the expected kind of backlash from the amish community but then to also get that from people who are not involved in that community speaking publicly at being an Amish survivor is something that I must do because I believe it is the right thing for me to do. And I also believe 
that we have options in life and everything we do, there's always going to be reactions. There's going to be consequences. And when we sit here and we know about this horror that is occurring and we do nothing, are we any better than the people committing these horrors? That's, and I feel like I wouldn't be any better than them because I already know. I know what happens. I know I'm not the only one. I know there's many people who have read my book, who have reached out to me, who have told me we didn't even live in the same community. And yet it's the same things that happened in the schools. It's still 20 years later, it's the same thing happening in the schools that are in my Amish community. Right now, as I go to church, as I send my kids to school. And for us to be able to do anything to help it, sorry about that. Go ahead. Sorry, I missed that. No, and, and so for us to be able to do anything to help, we have to be able to get to that point of understanding that, you know, it's the community isn't entirely just the furniture that they produce and they aren't just the milk and the eggs. You know, it is, like you said, the, the entire culture and the, uh, I, I think the way that you had described it in, in talking about, you know, in, in talking about your mom, there was, you know, this level of like brainwashing. Yeah. There's a large level of brainwashing. And when you keep people from having access to information, um, you can't expect them to know better because people that know better do better. Isn't it? Um, what's her name? I want to say Anne Lamont, but that's not her. I mean, it's somebody else who says, who says that when people know better, they do better. Um, I'm not sure. I, I do believe that when people know better, they do better. But mm -hmm. when you remove access to information and you control the information that people have access to, which is enabled by Wisconsin versus Yoder, you know, where are they going to get access to better information? And how are we going to work towards preventing this from occurring in the future? And what are the things that we can do? And the number one thing is, is that we have to establish that it happens in the first place. And then we have to elevate the voices of the people who are able to speak up. And then we have to address the things that people don't have access to information about, such as, for example, um, one of the things that I did um, I want to say like two years ago this year, I went to an Amish abuse awareness meeting and I made notes and I went there with a group of people. We ended up creating with um, professionals, of course, like therapists, licensed mental health professionals and other professionals, but also people from within the communities, people who have escaped from the communities. We created a booklet that's called How to Report Abuse. Here's the thing, that's available for download and distribution in PDF format on my website. Like just so there's something out there to help both people who are trying to understand the culture from the outside and people who are inside the culture who may need a little bit more information about like definitions of like, what do these legal terms mean? Because we didn't have access to that information in school. Mm -hmm. Or what is the definition of abuse? And um, just to put it out there, your website is the uh, uh, themisfitamish.com, correct? Yes. I founded an organization in 2020, I think. I don't know. Called the Misfit Amish. We, um, we actually work to bridge cultural gaps in a way that um, actually amplifies the voices of the most marginalized from within the Amish communities and also other Anabaptist communities. Oh, wow. Okay. How is it that you all go about doing that? Well, one, by conducting trainings for people who come in contact with Amish people, such as like healthcare professionals, therapists, um, I do podcasts with people that are interested in learning about Amish culture and things that they may be able to do to help. 
um, we create blog posts where we tell the stories of Amish survivors. We create um, podcasts that tell the stories of Amish and Anabaptist survivors, and we do research. And it's a combination of different efforts. Mm -hmm. We have community outreach people on the ground and like um, Lancaster, not Lancaster, New, New Holland, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. where um, one of our advisory board members speaks um, openly about what it's like being a queer Anabaptist and how the community treats them and what are things we can do to, to be better. Mm. Wow. That sounds like a wonderful organization. Say again? Oh, it sounds like a, a very wonderful organization. We try. Hmm. Uh, so I know w within all of this, you know, in, in talking about, I know one of the uh, initiatives that you're working towards is um, also helping to inform clinicians who may come into contact with individuals in the Amish community. Um, are there misconceptions that are often held within therapeutic communities that need to be addressed in order for them to best give this kind of care or just yes. care in general? Yes. Yes, actually. I've had therapists who literally treated me like I was an animal in the zoo. Wow. You, if you're going to look at me as a research subject, mm -hmm. don't bother. I don't want anything to do with you. If you're going to come into the chair and you're going to sit on your therapy couch or whatever, and you're going to tell me about my Amish culture based on your perspective as an outsider, don't bother. Mm. I've had people who really thought that it behooved them to tell me what Amish theological beliefs are. Wow. And first off, like, you don't know what you're thinking. You, you don't even know what you're talking about because, like, you have our so-called experts who, again, like, just misrepresent us. Like, mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of half-truths mixed in. Mm -hmm. And and so when you – the most dangerous information out there is the ones that are mixed with half-truths. You have therapists who come at me with this idea that Rumspringa, well, you had a choice. If you want to know what Rumspring is, go to my website, find the Rumspringa video, watch the panel on Rumspringa, and or just go find the podcast about Rumspringa. Listen to that. It is exhausting to repetitively be expected to not only be told about your culture and gaslit about your culture, your community, and everything that you experience but then have to educate the people supposed to be going and finding information themselves, mm -hmm. but they may not necessarily be able to find information because what information do we have out there? Like nowadays we have Missy Griffin's book, which is called Tears of the Silence. We have, of course, my book um, and Reflections and Memories of an Amish Misfit. We have... Um, the Misfit Amish podcast, we have the Plain People's podcast, we have um, just various people who have been attempting to speak out against all of this so that you can access information. But where is that when it comes to academia? Mm -hmm. Where is that in the scholarly articles when you have academic articles who say stuff like you know, Amish are not often in the practice. Oh, I'm very interested to see how you feel about this quote. So let mm. me give you the exact quote because it's maybe it's petty of me. I, I'm here for it. But I feel very strongly that this quote is stereotyping and it is harming people and it is not okay. But this is something. <laughs> that was published recently in an academic journal. Due to cultural expectations, the Amish are not often in the practice of critiquing or analyzing their own thoughts or behaviors or thinking abstractly. Mm -hmm. 
expecting them to engage in probing and exploring interpersonal and intrapersonal problems will likely be ineffective. So they're incapable of critical thinking. I mean, do, do you think my, my, my lack of ability to critically think kept me alive? Hmm. Do you think my lack of ability to critical, critically think um, allowed me to escape? Hmm. I just, I just have to ask. Right. No, I, I mean, I imagine that you had plenty of critical thinking ability to be able to figure out the extraordinary circumstances that you're in and how to escape those extraordinary circumstances. So what about the Amish people who literally go and they figure out ways to like, you know, actually have like a cooling system in their store that isn't run by mm -hmm. electrical wiring? What about that? Right. Do you think that's indicating an inability to critically think? Right. What about the fact that there's an there's an Amish person's Amish family's blog post about how this family like they they were choosing to go against the grain with the church and not shun their um, their children that determined they weren't going to attend Amish church anymore mm -hmm. because they didn't feel that shunning their children was love. Do you call that an inability to critically think? Right. Yeah, see your point. Or even self-reflect? Right. It's a very insulting, a very insulting idea, especially to, I mean, to come out of academia. That's pretty insane that that's represented. Written by a social worker. Goodness gracious. I feel so represented in academia. Mm. Just no sarcasm here today. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I imagine that there are, and I'm, I'm so thankful, you know, that, you know, you, you, you are putting out information. There are a lot of people who have come out of the Amish community who are putting out this information. Um, and so hopefully, as time goes on, there are more people in these academic institutions who have the direct experience to, uh, to be able to contribute to the, the body of knowledge as well. Um, you know, ho hopefully that continues to happen as time goes on. Um, and I mean, one of the things that kind of jumps out to me when you talk about, you know, the way that people continuously demand that you explain these things to them over and over again. It seems to be a real trend within just minority communities overall, is that people don't seek out the information. They wait until it's convenient and until you're in front of them, and then they say, expose your trauma to me and tell me everything that I want to know, everything that I'm going to ask you about. Do you think it's society's obsession with trauma corn? I think that's a very, I think that's a very valid point. Um, because like the other thing is, is so like, for example, yesterday I hopped into a TikTok live because they were having a live about living and loving. And I quote, the host literally says to me when I pop in that we're not talking about religion. Mm. So why is the very first question about PA Dutch versus Plot Deutsch? And the second thing is, I saw this movie, blah, 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 blah. And so this person goes off with like this whole, like I saw this movie, these Amish people are portrayed as the heroes in it, which is typically what media does. And mm -hmm. I say, I literally say, I do not have the energy for this conversation. Y'all have a good conversation. And I drop out. Mm -hmm. This person lost their mind, told me I'm handling it inappropriately. Wow. And I'm bullying them for asking questions questions mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> goodness gracious so not only do you you have to answer all of these questions but also if you set a boundary 
or show any emotion whatsoever, now you are also being a bad person for, for reacting that way. I'm hateful. I'm blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's almost like you can't, can't win. And so I've decided that unless people are being respectful of boundaries, mm -hmm. I'm not talking to them about it. Or if I don't have the energy for it, I'm not going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you know, if you really want me to listen to your depiction of Amish movies because you really think that's going to outweigh my lived experiences, right. I mean, you might as well pay me for a consultation. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you a free, like, I'll give you a consultation. I'm mm -hmm. going to tell you right now. Right. I, I'll, I'll talk to you. I will listen if you pay me. Mm -hmm. that's that's the point where i am i'm just like i'm not expending that amount of emotional energy mm -hmm. for things that are really quite they're not generating anything positive for me in my life right. the information is out there on the internet you can find it on my website you can find it on the plain people's podcast it tells the story of stories of many plain people you can read the blog you can read my book mm -hmm. but i am not required to constantly expend the emotional energy for your gratification to relive my trauma right. which brings me back to something you asked earlier you talked about like what all went into the book so what would you say if i told you i listened to the same song on repeat for the entirety of writing the entire book really wow i did hmm. i also cried sure. i screamed i wept and i felt like in a way writing the book is also a way for me to go back there one time and then be able to say go read my book i don't need to sit there and and relive all of those events repetitively throughout whatever whatever because of blah 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 instead i can just tell people go go read my book right. you want to know what i experienced in the amish feel free to test your assumptions with my book I don't care if you write me a one-star review. I don't care if you don't write a review at all. I don't, I just, I don't care. I don't care if you don't like my book. That was my life. This is what I carry with me. This is part of what having complex and chronic PTSD does to people. Is then you end up in a space where, you know, 20 years later, when you think of the community, you think about the betrayal, you think about the things that come up, that came up back then, you think about how they completely abandoned you. You think about the nightmares that you had for a long time that were repetitive. I specifically had, after I became a parent, I had this specific nightmare about a specific one of my abusers and the community. They would put me in a burning building and steal my child that that's what comes up you think about the fact that you can i i mean i think about this frequently you can give people all the information but unless they're open to receiving the information you cannot educate them because mm. in order for people to be more educated they have to be open to receiving the information. And when they sit there and they say that somebody reporting abuse that they experienced is them being vindictive, when they do that, that is, in fact, indicating an unwillingness to see or consider any other perspective. Mm. And it doubles down on so much of the messaging you had already been getting as you're living through this experience. Yep. How did you manage to keep yourself going through the writing process? Well, see, somebody made me mad. Mm. 
this is the truth. <laughs> that whole book, okay? So somebody made me mad. What they did is they wrote an article about me that they also put in um, some information about somebody else. So they interviewed the other person, the other survivor that they wrote about. They did not interview me. And one of the things that they did is they wrote in this article about my, and I quote, toddler sister. Nowhere do I ever tell you how old my sister was. They gave an age for my sister. And then they go on to bring in an outsider who is never Amish, who talk about Amish theology, who explains Amish theology as if it was Catholic theology. And then they go into this whole other thing. And I'm just like, oh, my God. So what do I do? I literally emailed the reporter <laughs> with an outline of like, first off, if you're going to write about me, you should probably check your facts. Mm -hmm. And second off, like, let me tell you about Amish culture and let me tell you about this and let me tell you why this person is not qualified to actually speak about us. Now, the, the author of that article did actually fix it. But by the time they fix it, I had written half of my book. Mm. Because when I talk about people writing about me and using my story for their own purposes, mm -hmm. I don't talk about my sister's story. That is not my story to right. tell. And if my sister wants to talk, she can. But I'm not going to answer questions about my sister. And when I establish that boundary, people get very upset with me, too. Mm -hmm. But regardless, that's that's really what what set this book on the way. It was just another in a long list because there's also a research study, a case resiliency on re uh, research study, a case study on resiliency that it was done on me. And, um, you know, they wrote about me in a way that they wanted to write about me but by the time they published it they said i was happily married i had been separated and had filed for divorce and was experiencing a divorce wow so it was good for their resiliency study mm -hmm. to say that i was married blah 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 but it wasn't actually factual mm -hmm. so people like to use my story for their gain. Right. It's not necessarily that it has to be accurate for them. It's mm -hmm. not important to them, but it is important to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so I could definitely see, see the motivation behind wanting to get your story out there accurately, get it all out there in one perfectly set up, um, uh, I guess, collection and be able to just, you know, now it's there. Now, if you need to know, if you want to know, and if you're going to take it seriously, it's here. Um, when talking about how people use your own trauma and, and just talking about resiliency, mm -hmm. I was going through um, some of your TikToks and listening to some of the things that you talked about. And you had brought up this point about how some people will talk about trauma as like being something that, you know, uh, like your, your trauma can make you. And it can, that is the thing that makes you grow. That is the thing that makes you resilient. And you had this amazing quote. You said, uh, my trauma did not make me who I am today. I made me who I am today, which I thought was such an amazing way of putting it. I will say that every day, all day long, every day. I don't, there's literally people who are therapists who try to help you redefine my cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. they try to help you redefine as like oh but your trauma made you stronger no the hell it did not my trauma gave me nightmares my trauma gave me ptsd my trauma no no you know what i did i found a way to survive despite all of that i'm the one who gets up every day and literally sits there and chooses to stay in this world despite everything i'm the one that made me strong i'm the one who chose to go find information and learn more and figure out a way to survive and make my life have meaning after all of that i'm the one who did that my trauma didn't do that to me 
My trauma broke me and destroyed me. I rebuilt myself. Mm-hmm. Facts. So thank you for listening to that. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I would prefer for you to be able to own every little bit of the fact that you got through that and that you have continued to grow and that you have become the advocate that you are um, versus saying that events that happened to you allowed that to happen. Yeah, I think it it indicates for me when when people think that trauma made them stronger, it indicates the idea that they wouldn't be strong were it not for the trauma. Mm. And I'd like to invite somebody who thinks that way to think about what if you had never experienced trauma? Are people who have never experienced trauma, are they incapable of being strong? Because mm. I don't really think that that's like experiencing trauma is not synonymous with strength. Mm. Absolutely. And I know you had mentioned um, cognitive behavioral therapy, like this, uh, um, and how that can feed into the the rationalization of, you know, this experience is what has brought me strength and, um, you know, reframing it in that kind of way. Um, How have you, uh, have you looked into cognitive behavioral therapy or how do you feel about all that? I'm not really a fan of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's not really my thing. Um, I did do EMDR therapy. Yes. Uh, EMDR therapy happened while I was still in s- attending Amish church. I got a lot of pressure. Um, that was a really difficult time for me. Mm. Uh, I had to use medication therapy as well to be able to survive that. Uh, but I will say that I think that EMDR therapy probably saved my life along with many other little things along the way. Because there are people that care and there are people that will do the right things, you know. Right. It's a matter of like sometimes you got to wake up and you got to find the good in every day. Sometimes you just got to remember that this too will pass. There are things out there that you can survive, but it doesn't mean that you can heal from them. And there are things out there that you can survive and you can heal from. And maybe 10 years later, it looks like a whole different conversation in your head if the same thing comes up. Mm. But there are other things, like the nightmares. Writing my book really sent me down a spiral of nightmares and insomnia. Mm. A lot. I can only imagine. Uh, but that's that's the point. It's like there are some things that you know they just are what they are and -hmm. it's not even for a lack of like trying it's because when you experience so much trauma there's changes that happen in your brain and yes your brain can also change back but it doesn't mean that it'll ever be as if that trauma didn't happen Mm. right which i'm sure you know sure sure um and trauma therapy is one of the things I'm very passionate about, especially with, with EMDR. Um, I'm very much trying to learn a lot more about it um, because it does seem like when it comes to things like cognitive behavioral therapy, it's just, it doesn't do it. Um, and, you know, sometimes that reprocessing is really what is necessary for people to be able to get to that point of, you know, being able to work through a lot of the trauma that they've experienced, especially when it is complex and when it's chronic. Mm-hmm. So, I was actually, after I did months and months of um, EMDR therapy, I did more than, it would have been from September until February. I did EMDR therapy about three times a week. Mm. And um, just, to, just to give you an idea. And at the end of that, my therapist looked at me and said, I've done everything that I can. Sometimes people have chronic PTSD and they explained what chronic PTSD was. I was 19 years old. 
and all I can say about that is like on one hand, I appreciate the honesty. For me, one of the big things that I appreciate about people is is honesty. Mm. Don't don't beat around the bush. Don't don't try to sugarcoat something and make it something that is not. It's part of why cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't work well for me, is because it feels too much like it's it's just like all of this and all of this versus like the EMDR is more or less you can reprocess it and reframe it in a very mm -hmm. controlled environment and then you are able to better handle those things. Right. So I've I've always appreciated the fact that this therapist had had the the actual ability to tell me that more than likely like I will probably have nightmares and insomnia for the rest of my life in two varying degrees, which it's been what I'm, I'm about to be. That would have been in 2004. It's been 19 years. Mm. As of yesterday. Oh, no, that's today. Hold on. Hold on. It's my liberation day, y'all. Hey, congratulations. Happy liberation day. Yeah. Liberation day. 8 o'clock p.m. Central Standard Time, February 16, 2004. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Man, what are the odds? Congrats. I didn't even think about that when we scheduled this uh -huh. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you had to do some celebrating. Um, man. So... For, for you, I guess, hearing that from a therapist, I know that, you know, now you really appreciate that honesty and you're happy that they that they told you that. Um, how was that to to hear when they initially told you? Devastating. Mm. Like it's. Uh, it wasn't enough when they. Did all those things to me. I can never truly escape everything that they did to me. But I mean, I have the tools. That's the other thing about, you know, having a qualified trauma therapist mm -hmm. is uh, they're able to help you find the tools to be able to navigate situations where you experience flashbacks and, and reliving of trauma. And especially like the reliving, when you have the emotional hangovers from reliving trauma, they, they help you find out what tools work for you. And sometimes mm -hmm. you just have to be as gentle as you can with yourself because you know what? Um, there is this thing called like radical acceptance. Mm -hmm. And that is just like, like, yeah, like, like this happened but radical acceptance to me like that's that's like you know working on like accepting that this happened but now i can be gentle with myself i can do things for myself mm -hmm. i deserve good things in life reminding myself that i'm safe i'm not back there i'm i'm never in that specific space again they don't know where i live they don't even know my legal name by the way mm -hmm. They don't know my address. They don't know. They don't know anything that could allow them to find me and track me down. Mm -hmm. Although, so, Instance of the Amish, which I don't know if you watched that. I have not. Okay. Sins of the Amish is a two-part docuseries on Peacock TV. And in part two, they show one of my abusers walking up to a police car with a fishing pole, telling them to go take that camera and shove it somewhere where the sun doesn't shine. That was filmed in June. Mm. In October of that year, somebody I hadn't spoken to since I was a conforming Amish person left the community and wrote me and told me that he's a spiritual person and if I just talk to him mm. I my whole life would be so much better right. so much better and he's so repentant mm. 
The whole forgiveness shtick. I mean, what do you call that? When he has people. Because he's not allowed to contact me. Mm. But, you know, that's that's kind of like circumventing the whole thing. Yes. It's like it going around. So going around the 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 boundaries that were set mm-hmm. to try to get me to to pressure me into communicating with him. Right. Yeah. Right. And they they put it as being this thing that would be so beneficial for you, but it is so self-serving because for him, you know, that could be a relief that, you know, I can get this forgiveness, I can talk to them again, and then for them that's relieving because now he's getting that relief. But for you, I mean, it's putting yourself out on a limb for, I mean, what? For what? He tortured me. This is the person who threatened me on the day I write about escaping in the car. If you remember that part. Mm. The alcoholic, that Mm. one. Oh, God. So what is the likelihood that if he's in a community that doesn't really seem interested in holding him accountable, mm. what is the likelihood that he's not still offending? Right. Mm. How... I... I I think I've thrown a few big questions at you, and I know this is probably going to be a very big one as well. Um, So I'll try my best to break it into a couple different pieces. Uh, I know you mentioned that, you know, earlier you were talking about how, you know, sometimes people can step in. Um, And for you, you had this individual who was taking you to, to appointments, and they, you know, at one point, talk to you and they saw that something was wrong and you two were able to talk about things and for you that you know what was a helpful step in things so for the community outside of the Amish community um, along with better understanding these issues better understanding how frequently CSA is occurring along with all of that how can people continue to to support how can we continue to push this further so that people who are surviving these things don't have to continue to survive these things, that we can actually address these issues. Circulate information is number one. Mm -hmm. Um, Circulate information. Number two is like also, you know, be a safe person. Don't go spreading an Amish person's business around. That um, is critical. the other thing that I always recommend is that people elevate the voices of the survivors who have come from Amish communities who are able to speak. Mm. And I actually have a section on my website that talks about how you can help. Perfect. And we list things about like educating yourself, educating other people, becoming more trauma aware and informed. And trauma aware and informed doesn't just mean it's a one and done. It means that you maintain that what is happening now in how we understand trauma today versus yesterday. Mm. Because those things change over time. Um, Circulate information publicly. Understand that if you suspect that an Amish child is being abused, report it. There's Just because they're Amish people doesn't mean that they're not subject to American law. Amish in America are American citizens, and therefore they are subject to American law. They are not a sovereign nation. They don't, they don't get to be above the law. I appreciate that. Uh, Another thing is, is that, so I mentioned Misty Griffin's book, Mm -hmm. uh, Tears of the Silence. 
on her website. She has a petition listed where she's working on um, making all teachers in, in America should be required to teach um, Aaron's Law, if you're familiar with that. Uh, I'm not familiar with Aaron's Law, I don't believe. At least not by name. Aaron's Law allows for like teaching children like appropriate body parts, like age mm -hmm. and gender appropriate yes. um, preventative information. And, and that's not taught in Amish schools because Wisconsin versus Yoder. That's not taught in many private schools because of Wisconsin versus Yoder and other rules. So what Missy's trying to do is trying to have a petition that um, will address Congress to attempt to um, make it to where no school is exempt from teaching children appropriate age and gender appropriate prevention information. Mm. Wow. So... Maybe check out the petition, Absolutely. sign the petition. It takes like three seconds to go sign a petition. Mm -hmm. I, I will be right there. Um, I, uh, in, in the, the trauma study that I've done previously, I absolutely agree with the efficacy of giving kids the appropriate language to be able to identify the parts of their body, to be able to specify what these specific things, these specific acts, to be able to fully understand that. Um, you know, far beyond, you know, just good touch, bad touch. That's very difficult mm -hmm. to really understand for kids. And so I am 100% with you on that. And I will be uh, absolutely signing the petition when we're, um, once we wrap up. Um, the, so I guess one of the, one of the last things I did want to ask you about, because you are a life coach now, you know, so you are entering this field and, and you are, uh, or I guess you are in this field um, and you are doing this work as well. Um, what has that process been like for you, you know, making the decision to become a life coach and how has it been? Well, actually, I greatly enjoy being a life coach. I mm -hmm. kind of like specialize in like, you know, supporting people as they go through um, traumatic events. But here's a number one rule. Mm -hmm. I will not life coach you because I specialize in supporting people through traumatic events, but I will not life coach you unless you are seeing a licensed qualified mental health professional for your trauma. Because there may be trauma that comes up. And my job as a life coach is very clearly not to help you process that trauma. Mm -hmm. Rather, it is to help you figure out where you're at, where you need to go, and how to get to point from point A to point B because life coaches navigate here and now, mm. whereas trauma therapists help you process the trauma so that you can learn different ways to deal with it. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful. But it's been really rewarding, mm -hmm. truthfully, in many ways, because I can see the benefits of like what it does for people when they have somebody sitting there and helping them and I kind of think about it in the context of this. It's like mm -hmm. the person, one of the people who helped me when I escaped, essentially did that for me, but there wasn't a life coach label associated with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You get to be an ally in the process. And uh, mm -hmm. the research has demonstrated that the most important thing, I mean, in mental health in general, is not the modality that we use. It is that therapeutic relationship. And so having somebody in your corner with PTSD as well, the strongest predictor of progress through PTSD symptomology is the, uh, is the support network that you have behind you. Um, and so I am thrilled to find out that, you know, uh, I just found out today that, that you are a life coach because we truly do need so many more people who can come from a place of experience and be able to understand people on a level that individuals without trauma, neurotypical individuals will never be able to understand, which is no offense to them. It's just truth. We, we need, we need truth. that in the field. Um, can people find th the information uh, for you as a life coach on your website as well? The misfitamish.com. Um, they can just contact me. Okay. Uh, I will say this is like, just, just like one of the, the big things is like Amish survivors they they literally they often like the survivors that I provide life coaching for and they often literally follow the work that I do in the public speaking that I do mm -hmm. and and when they reach out to me it's like 
well, I don't feel like I have to over explain myself yes. to you because I know you get me. So sometimes speaking out can serve twofold as like, you know, people feel like they're less alone. And then other people feel like they're able to speak because they are less alone. Right. And even other people sit there and they amplify those words because even though they're not in a space where they're ready to speak, they understand and recognize the value in identifying the problems and discussing and having these difficult conversations. Yes, absolutely. No, nobody is ever alone. Uh, wonderful. Uh, so as we come to a conclusion today, um, again, I so, so much appreciate you being here to talk about everything. And even more than that, I appreciate all of the advocacy that you've continued to do that you have written this phenomenal book. Um, again, reflection, reflections and memories of an Amish misfit for anybody interested. Um, any uh, final things you would like to plug any messages you'd like to send out? Yeah, actually, I'd like to say this. Um, you know, if you're somebody who is in an abusive environment or who's struggling wherever you're at, just know this. Everybody deserves basic human rights. And basic human rights involve safety and food and shelter and water and love and empathy and compassion. You are worthy of those things. It doesn't matter if the people around you don't see that. I promise you, you are worthy. Beautiful words. Mary Byler, the Amish misfit, author of Reflections and Memories of an Amish Misfit. I appreciate you so much for being here. Uh, and to everybody listening, uh, please continue to take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and we will talk again next time.